Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and a Washington Post columnist. Today, we're talking about the administration's continuing campaign to basically shut down any investigation in the House of the conduct of the president and his circle, as well as a possible proposal from Professor Larry Tribe to try to break through the logjam. And we've got feds in several cities to talk about it. Talking feds regular Barb McQuaid, who was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan from 2010 to 2017. Barb is currently a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. Always lucky to be able to welcome her. Welcome, Barb, back to Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. Always fun to be part of the conversation. Elliot Williams was Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs at the Department of Justice, where he managed a team that handled the department's legislative affairs activities, dealing with antitrust, civil, civil rights, criminal, environmental, immigration, and tax enforcement. Quite a portfolio. Elliot is currently a principal in the Rabin Group's Government Affairs Practice Group. Elliot, welcome back to Talking Feds. Always a blast to be here. And finally, we are really pleased to finally be able to welcome to the program for the first time Asha Rangappa, who served in the Federal Bureau of Investigation as a special agent specializing in counterintelligence investigations from 2002 until 2005 in New York City. Asha is currently Director of Admissions and a Senior Lecturer at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University, where she teaches national security law and other related courses. Welcome to the program for the first time, Asha. Thank you so much for having me, Harry. So were you or are you the person who actually makes the final call on the best I can tell 99.8% of (laughs) applicants to Yale Law School who get the reject letter? Uh, yeah, that would have been me. Um, I did that for 12 years. Um, I read, I don't know, roughly 3,000 to 4,000 applications a year. And as you said, for admission of for about 250 people each year. Okay, well, really a pleasure to have you. So let's dive in. We have the White House, the Department of Justice, and Team Trump in general completely rebuffing the House Judiciary Committee on several fronts seemingly unconcerned about the political costs of being viewed as obstructionist. So just this week alone, you have the White House ordering former communications director Hope Hicks, former deputy White House counsel Annie Donaldson, both of whom might have very significant testimony to offer, not to comply with a subpoena from the House. You have a series of maneuvers involving Michael Flynn, who has discharged his lawyer and may be preparing to resist efforts to get him to testify. You have a second likely count of contempt against Attorney General William Barr for the department's refusal to produce documents about the genesis of the so-called citizenship question on the census. And again, that's just the added snubs of this week. 
So let's start with Donaldson and Hicks. Why does the Judiciary Committee want to hear from them? And and does the White House have a solid case for ordering them not to comply? Um, Asha, do you have thoughts here? Yes, I do. (laughs) You know, I think that there needs to be more of a clear explanation to the public about what executive privilege is and it isn't. Um, My understanding is that, that the Judiciary Committee wants to hear from Hope Hicks because she was involved in the, I don't know what other word to use, the cover up of the- I think that's a fair word here. Of the Trump Tower meeting or in response to the New York Times uh, reporting on it. The one that the president himself helped author, yes? Correct. So the president was involved in in the PR strategy, essentially, for, for that event. And Donaldson has information on the communications or kind of what was taking place with Donald McGahn, the, the White House counsel, and his interactions with the president. And he is relevant because remember that the president wanted him to have Mueller fired and then wanted him to then cover up the fact that he had requested him to do that. And so... Yeah. And Donaldson, by the way, I, I hadn't realized that she, she's portrayed a little as kind of McGahn's like assistant. She's deputy White House counsel and she's, you know, an, a... Uh, lawyer with a with a pretty uh, impressive pedigree herself. So but she was the person who was with um, again, taking notes of all this stuff contemporaneously. And, you know, that's pretty solid evidence. Right. And, you know, the assertion of executive privilege in either of these contexts seems to me to be highly dubious. Executive privilege is a separation of powers issue. It's the idea that there are certain provinces of the executive that ought to be free of congressional intrusion because they involve deliberations on executive functions or, you know, national security issues in which the executive has authority and and that they should be able to, he should be able to speak with candor with his advisors in in making those decisions and not fear that they're going to become public. I don't see how either of these situations fits into that category. Uh, I mean, the first was basically a cover up of, of an event that happened before he even became president. And the second was essentially an act of obstruction. Barb, I, first, have we given full due to the executive privilege argument? What's your sense of of why they're saying that executive privilege covers both, you know, Donaldson and uh, and Hicks, neither of whom is, um, you know, ex- super high level, smallest uh, circle of confidants with the president. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between executive immunity and executive privilege, which are two different things. There's one court case on this. It involved the assertion of executive immunity by the Bush administration to prevent White House counsel Harriet Myers from testifying in the U.S. attorney firing scandal uh, during that administration. And the court in that case held that uh, aides to a president do not enjoy immunity from testifying. That is, they can't blanketly say, I stand in the shoes of the president and you can't even make me come. There is you know, a, a limited qualified executive privilege. And so you have to show up and you have to go question by question, but there may be certain questions over which you can assert executive privilege. As Asha said, things relating to deliberative process, candid advice, those kinds of things. But when it's getting into some sort of criminal cover-up, I don't think anyone would agree that that should be covered by the executive privilege. So 
I think it's a very aggressive move to assert executive immunity and say these people don't have to even show up to the hearing. I think ultimately they'll lose in the courts. But as Asha said, if they can stall it long enough, they might be able to get themselves past the 2020 election. Yeah. Okay. And as you say, so it would be item by item. It's the evidence that is covered and not the the body, as it were, which the White House has at least argued for certain people like McGahn. There could be a whole blanket um, immunity from testifying in the first place. So, Elliot, I, do you do you agree? I mean, we've had certain arguments from the White House that seem to be dead losers in the water and seem to be on a fast track for being rejected. And I mean by that the assertion in several instances that there's just no legislative purpose to what Congress is doing. That's been pretty well slapped down and and is looking bad for them. This is something a little bit different, right? This is claiming executive privilege, although, as Barb says, in this kind of hyper- aggressive way. Do you see this as of a piece with the no legislative purpose argument being uh, on on a track to quick rejection? I, I do. And, and I think to, to answer that question, it's important to sort of pull the camera back or at least hear the microphone back for a second and, and talk about how we got and sort of what what's driving this. And this goes back to the very first day Congress was sworn in back on January 3rd and right around January 3rd, 2019. And right around then, the president started tweeting about presidential harassment. He used the term for the first time. And any attempt by this Congress, a Congress with a Democratic majority or a House with a Democratic majority, to try to investigate anything or to try to engage in any active oversight was going to be found to be harassment or overreach or whatever. And you can just count the number of instances in which the broader strategy has been to treat Congress as an illegitimate investigative body. Frankly, even out of our the context, you know, the four of us all live in, um, let's get out of that context for a second. Like Steve Mnuchin, the, the Treasury Secretary, got, it, got into it right. with Maxine Waters over the fact that he didn't want to testify because he had a meeting. Literally, he just, well, you know, I have an important meeting to be at today, and I don't see why I should be here testifying before Congress as the head of the Treasury Department testifying to the House Financial Services Committee. But that's just the framework that the administration has set. So that's how we got here. Where we end up ultimately is holding these folks in contempt because that brings in the, the third branch of government, the courts, who can actually enforce the orders uh, to, to make these people comply. Simply, so let me ask a quick yeah. follow up to you because you've got a fair bit of experience on the Hill. So if it if, if the regime were running the way Barb says it should, it's an item by item inquiry with about executive privilege. So let's say that, in fact, Hope Hicks were to show up and she were to be asked about Trump's actions on the plane and she were to say, I'm sorry, executive privilege and the House would say, no, I'm sorry, it's a crime fraud exception. Please talk, Ms. Hicks. At that point, on that particular item, does the music stop and a whole court case ensue? Do they go on to other testimony while it does? H- how would an item by item uh, kind of executive privilege objection actually operate sure. in Congress. It would be like a, hear, a hearing, just like any, like a deposition, for instance. So if a witness takes the fifth, you 
you know, it can, it can apply to their whole testimony or it could be question by question, right, as, as would be the case in a deposition or whatever. And so she'd say, you know, she'd make her, her fabricated, phony um, assertion of privilege, you know, and the, the member of Congress would probably push her on it. And eventually she wouldn't answer anything. And then they would just litigate uh, from there. I wonder then what happens with all the rest of the testimony. Are we done for the day? Because obviously this is a skirmish involving the you know attempt to uh, obtain on the House's part and rebuff on the administration's part certain you know television moments that would both you know educate and and potentially inculpate. And, and uh, educate the public and yeah. inculpate the president. And, and to some extent, I don't know because I've never had a witness fabricate and make up a phony and, and <laughs> assertion of privilege. Really? Well, with all uh, your so, experience? Well, well, but, but, well we've just ne- uh, no comment. But like, uh, <laughs> uh, we've just never seen this. I've just I've never seen yeah. this level of stonewalling of Congress. Now, look, a witness asserting privilege or attempting to assert privilege uh, in an open hearing is itself a theatrical moment because then you could have a little back and forth between the members of Congress and the witness, which has a value for the folks who are watching at home because everybody's sort of doing what they want to do as a narrative or sort of PR point. Um, Now, at the end of the day, what they would do, I think, is... Um, bang their heads against the wall for the remaining four and a half minutes of that round of questioning, give up and move on, and then go to a different line of questioning Mm -hmm. that is still either productive for the members of Congress to ask. I'm speaking about the Democrats here. The Republicans would probably seek to just rehabilitate her and fulminate and huff and puff and bang bang their shoe on the table and that kind of thing. So, Barb and Asha, this isn't exactly down the middle of our experience, but we're all following this pretty closely. I wonder about your view of the success of the strategy that Elliot outlined the uh, the the White House seems to be trying not simply to resist whatever legal compulsion or subpoena comes up, but to be uh, doing it on the grounds that the entire thing is is illegitimate. It's all harassment. It's played in arch political terms. It's always about motive and politics. First, do you do you agree that that's the you know the the broader rhetorical strategy? And how do you think it's working? Well, so I would say that first, as far as the strategy that or theory of of why they are doing this, I think I would I would go with Elliot's, you know, what what the description that he just gave. I think it's more than simply discrediting the investigation. I think this is about disempowering Congress as an institution. And that's because, you know, we're watching this happen in, in the context of subpoenas. But let's also remember, this is someone who declared a national emergency, even in the face of Congress not allocating funds. And what scares me is that I think that we are going to start seeing the same approach to the courts. And I think that's when we're going to be in trouble. Because when this gets litigated, and when they start losing, and the court begins to order them to either provide the documents or show up to testify if they don't comply, then I think the question is, where are we? Because that's kind of the last stopgap. And if, if it becomes, we're not only going to not acknowledge Congress as an institution, we're not going to acknowledge the courts, then I think we are in a true crisis. Yeah, talk about constitutional crisis. All right, I want to spend just a little bit of time on the Michael Flynn developments and in, in particular how they dovetail with this overall 
strategy. So in the last, uh, well, just yesterday, we had already had a transcript of a voicemail between Flynn's lawyer and and John Dowd, the president's lawyer. But we got the actual tape, heard the tone, heard the the whole kind of ending emphasis on the president's you know regard for for Flynn and the like. So that that I I'm, I wonder if people think that that's a that that was a pretty significant development or or just sort of a redundancy. But also, Flynn has fired his lawyers now, and is that somehow related? Do we think to an effort to change his whole dynamic, withdraw his plea, try not to be subpoenaed by? the uh, Congress somehow come back into the whole, you know, under the whole uh, Trump umbrella and Trump camp. Anybody have thoughts about that? Yeah, I've got some thoughts about that, Harry. Um, One of the things is I think it so clearly demonstrates how little people have absorbed the Mueller report, because this is all in the Mueller report. The call, you know, obviously not the audio, which does, I think, bring it home and illustrate, you know, the tone and some other things that might be important. But but to me, although the call is kind of important because he talks about, you know, let me state this for you in in starker terms. We're going to need a heads up if you're talking, if you're cooperating. And don't forget the president is very fond of of, of Michael Flynn, which, you know, I think suggests we want to share information and uh, remember, be good to us and we'll be good to you. Right which I think could suggest obstruction of justice. But what's more important, I think, is what's contained in the Mueller report, which says that um, the call gets returned. And when the call gets returned and Flynn's lawyers say, you know, we can't share information with you. At that point, Dowd becomes indignant. And he says, I am taking that answer to be hostile, hostility from Flynn toward President Trump. And you know what? I'm going to tell President Trump that Flynn's being hostile to him. That strikes me as even more overt intimidation of a potential witness than this call. So I think like all obstruction evidence, you have to look at it in context and you can't look at it in isolation. And when you look at this as part of a bigger pattern, I think it does suggest obstruction of justice with regard to Michael Flynn. So I agree with all of that, Barbara, though I think I'd give a stronger kind of of account of the difference in actually hearing the audio. And I think it plays into the broader struggle that's going on now. Most everything, everything they want McGahn for, for example, is in the report. And this, of course, had no visuals, but just the the hearing in, in real time and as you say, the, you know, the, the, especially the coda of the president's fond of you, it just, as juries do, it, it just makes, seems to make it so much more vivid and seems to me the possible solution to the quandary the House finds itself in, which is people's seeming indifference or glassy eyedness to the, the deep, the written details in the Mueller report. I, you know, Asha, you have any, you have any thoughts about that? 
Yeah, I think you've hit the nail right on the head, Harry. I mean, we also saw this phenomenon with uh, Mueller's press conference, if you'll remember. I mean, he said things in those in that press conference that are also in the Mueller in Mueller report, such as if I could have exonerated the president of obstruction of justice, I would have done so, but I could not. Um, And he he says that two or three times, I think, in, in volume two of the report. But when people saw him saying that out loud, you know, not only did I think it really sink in that the president had not been exonerated, but that clip was played over and over again. I mean, there is something just about our media environment right now that having visual, having audio is something that actually can reach many more people than a 448-page written document. Yeah, I mean, the quote you're hearing bandied about is, you know, people uh, prefer the movie to the book. Okay, well, um, uh, we're running out of time on this topic. I have I wanted to close out by soliciting people's opinions on possible responses if Congress is, if nothing else, delayed or stymied in the in the different people in the administration camp. Do you have any sense of of other witnesses, or who would you? If you were counsel to the Judiciary Committee, uh, who might you uh, call up that's, a, you know, a new figure now or that hasn't hasn't been part of the, the back and, and forth? Where might be your next move? Anybody have an idea about that, Elliot? I'll say something a little controversial here and say someone other than Robert Mueller from the special counsel team, because we've gotten into the cult of Mueller somewhat that he is the only voice that we can hear from who was the only one who'll have authority on any of these issues. But ultimately, and this gets back to precisely what um, Asha and Barb had said in their comments, which is that, you know, it's the movie versus the book and the value to hearing from him, even at that press conference. A lot of people just aren't plugged in as to what happened, uh, you know, or haven't read the report or so on. But hearing someone just reiterate what's in the report has it would have a huge public benefit. And again, it just needs to be someone from the Mueller team. It doesn't even need to be him. Um, Barb? Well, you know, obviously some of these people who were there and participated that they've been looking at, like McGahn and Hicks and Donaldson. But, you know, another person whose name comes up very frequently in the report um, is Steve Bannon. Yes. I'd, I'd like to hear from Steve Bannon under oath about some of the things that he saw and participated in, you know, in his statements to uh, book authors, he's actually been remarkably yes. candid and unguarded in sharing some things. Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting day of testimony. Um, Asha? I think it could be worth getting Rod Rosenstein back in the seat. You know, he oversaw the investigation and then he was also a part of this decision later to exonerate or whatever um, the president of obstruction. And, you know, I think understanding how he like how how he reconciles all of that together would be important. I think I would disagree with Elliot on bringing someone from the Mueller team. I think it's actually really good to have all of those people uh, to be the face of the Mueller investigation, Mueller himself, because they've been attacked so much for their donations and are they Democrat or Republican that I think as soon as you bring a visual face that could be anyone other than Mueller, which I think many people are loath to criticize too much. Um, I think you open the floodgates for, you know, just going down the rabbit hole of, of discrediting 
the investigation based on on their background. Yeah, I see. Like the 18 angry Democrats. This is obviously their big strategy, right? It comes out yesterday that Kalimnik might have been uh, being something of a source. And how does the administration try to spin that as a show that that Mueller's report is partial or slanted or even dishonest, you know, which is a, a total non sequitur and, and almost certainly wrong anyway. Of course, Mueller, you know, Mueller knows the, the facts on Kalimnik. And yet that's that's the way it's uh, it's spun. Yeah, I got to say, I, you know, I really do think Rod Rosenstein has some splaining to do. You know, we're hearing from Barr now and and others, Giuliani, uh, they're really excoriating Mueller for not having bottom line and said, did Trump have criminal conduct? Well, who was the one who was overseeing the investigation at the time and who must have been aware of that decision? And then Rosenstein's the very one who then joins with Barr at the end, implicitly rebuking Mueller and coming to a different conclusion you know, and and Barr, who's never been a prosecutor for a day in his life, is heavily leaning on him and his credibility. So he would be something of a hostile witness, but an illuminating one. He certainly wouldn't lie. And yeah, I would really like to see that. So those I, I was thinking of Bannon. Also, I would just add if Flynn, I think Flynn would be would be pretty good, even though he'd be squirrely to have him in the hot seat. And and I think they could get him there if he's still under a cooperation agreement, I think could be pretty uh, vivid too. just uh, the whole, um, you know, genesis of the cozying up with Russia. Okay, uh, well, that's all we have time for on this topic. Let's move now to our sidebar. We're going to take a moment to explain some of the terms and relationships that you hear about in this podcast and generally when you hear about federal prosecutorial uh, practice. So today, Paul De Podesta is going to explain the structure of the federal courts the three-level structure of the district courts, federal courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court. I got to take a a second to detail Paul's career for those of you who don't know it, because he has um, forged for himself one of the most remarkable and interesting professional paths I've ever encountered. Uh, He played both baseball and football in college, which you'll see is very relevant, and following the counsel of his lawyer father not to go to law school, He essentially created the job description of data geek slash strategist that revolutionized baseball. His role is detailed in the movie Moneyball. Then he became the Dodgers general manager at age 31, continued to have a huge impact on baseball in different roles. Uh, and during his 20 seasons in many in many roles, he was the only executive in the league to win divisional titles with five different organizations. In 2015, he was widely considered the heir apparent for the Mets general manager job, one of the crown jewels of baseball. So he decided it was the perfect time to switch over to football, taking a job as chief strategy officer with the Cleveland Browns, with the mission of turning that lowly, even pathetic franchise around. And now four years in, it looks as if he's on track to do that, which I say with uh, some ambivalence since it comes at the expense of my hometown Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Anyway, as I say, Paul's going to explain for us the structure of the federal courts. 
What are federal, trial, and appellate courts? In the federal judicial system, the general trial courts are called district courts. District courts are where federal, civil, and criminal cases are first filed and decided. The United States and its territories are geographically divided into 94 judicial districts. Some districts cover one entire state or territory. For example, the Federal District of Massachusetts. Other states are subdivided into several districts. SDNY, for instance, is the Southern District of New York, which includes Manhattan and the Bronx. It's right across the Brooklyn Bridge from the Eastern District of New York, or EDNY. Each district has a number of district judges, currently between 2 and 28. District judges in the states are appointed for life. They can never be removed from their jobs unless they engage in bad conduct. In the territories, judges are appointed for 10-year terms. District courts have the primary responsibility for determining relevant facts and applying the law to those resolved facts. Federal appellate courts review the decisions of district court judges to ensure that they correctly determined and applied the law. They can reverse decisions of the district court for errors of law, but appellate courts usually will not second-guess the factual findings of a lower court. The 94 district courts are grouped into 12 appellate circuits. 11 circuits are referred to by number, from the 1st Circuit to the 11th Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit reviews only the decisions from the district courts of D.C. But this is a big job, because many cases involving the federal government are filed there. The decisions of the circuit courts are reviewed by the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not review every appellate decision, but only those that it believes are important enough to require further review. If the Supreme Court decides not to grant certiorari, that does not mean it affirms the case, but just that it won't hear it. Nevertheless, that also means the case is completed or final. For Talking Feds, I'm Paul DePodesta. Back to it. In the midst of this apparent unbreakable logjam, Harvard professor and constitutional scholar Larry Tribe has offered a proposal that's already attracting significant support, including several key endorsements on cable channels yesterday. Tribe's basic notion is a full impeachment inquiry in the House, including an opportunity for Trump to provide a defense, but then not a referral for trial in the Senate, rather a lesser outcome along the lines of a censure motion or a, quote, sense of the House resolution. So let's start with the question whether the tri proposal is constitutional and practically feasible, and then we'll turn to discuss the merits of the proposal. Elliot, I again, leaning on your um, experience up on the Hill, can you give a sense of whether this proposal has some purchase and some uh, feasibility or precedent up there? I think it does. And here's the thing. Congress makes findings and makes statements of the sense of the Congress all the time. It's it's essentially a vote from a House of Congress saying, this is our view as the House of Representatives. These are our findings. And many pieces of major legislation start with findings, where it literally begins with the words, Congress finds the following. You know, we have a healthcare system that blah, 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 or our taxation system, blah, 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 blah. And that's a statement that Congress, as a body that has the authority to find and make official statements, has found something through the committee process or through the hearing process or so on. 
if Congress wishes to say we have found that X fact has happened or X has occurred, they can absolutely do that. Another thing to keep in mind, because um, again, we've gotten caught in this impeachment versus non-impeachment binary. And we can talk a little more about the fact that Congress can censure uh, a president. And a little bit going back to, to the 1990s, the whole point of the organization moveon.org, if you remember, they were founded with the name censure and move on because they were trying to make an argument for censuring rather than impeaching Bill Clinton. So it's another tool in Congress's book. They don't necessarily have to impeach him. There are just lots of different ways they can hold him accountable. And one such way is making a finding that he has done something wrong. So that's an interesting, legally interesting uh, proposal that Professor Tribe has put out. Asha, what, what do you think? Uh, you know, any, any precedent for it and how effective do you think it would be with the peculiar, I'll say, psychological profile of uh, of President Trump? Yeah. So I think that there could be three advantages here. Uh, the first is that you can do what tribe proposes. And I think even the censure, though I'm not as familiar with, with that, um, how that works, like if that involves certain kinds of hearings before that happens or something like that. But I think uh, Tribe's proposal specifically would still allow you to have the hearings and, and get the benefit of those, you know, the visuals and the audio and all of that. The second thing is he also mentions that you can do that procedure and give the president an opportunity to come and contest or, you know, present a defense of some kind. Um, and I think that would add some legitimacy in the sense that it wouldn't be like, hey, we railroaded through and, and came to this uh, conclusion at the end. There was actually a chance for there to be some, not necessarily like an adversarial trial kind of process, but for, for someone to be able to clear their name. And I think the third and most important piece is that it offers the public, you know, some sense that there there are middle grounds that it's not just all or nothing. And Harry, to your point, one of the untested variables in this whole equation, we always like worry about, will the Senate convict or not and all this stuff, is that Trump is incredibly thin-skinned. You even mention impeachment and he goes bonkers. If you a terrible, just, disgusting, bad word. <laughs> if you started this process, whether it's censure, whether it's impeachment, anything that was like basically saying you're bad, I think he would just go bonkers. I think he would spontaneously combust. I think you he would flip out on Twitter. He may try to do something that is so blatantly illegal and unconstitutional that then there would literally be no choice but to get him out. I don't know that we want to provoke him to that degree. Like, uh, you know, we don't want to start a nuclear war or something like that. But we don't know how unhinged he can become simply by the process getting rolling. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, sometimes he tries or his advisors try to suggest it's a Br'er Rabbit strategy, you know, come on, that's how we're going to win the election. But mm -hmm. you're absolutely right that, you know, that that pouting tirade on the on the lawn just at the at the I word, you know, it, it really it really did show how totally uh, unhinged he got. And, and you made the point to me, I think, when we were talking before that there was a, uh, you know, a censure actually back in the or 1820s, a successful one, whenever that was, of Andrew Jackson, who in, in other ways, I think, is a fairly Trumpian character and that Jackson smoldered about it for the, the rest of his life. Yeah, he apparently lost his mind and, and tried to get it undone, you know, for the rest yeah. of his life. 
Um, Barb, what do you think about the uh, effectiveness of this and maybe its likelihood of of drawing even broader uh, support? Yeah, I think it's useful to consider ideas that are beyond the the all or nothing aspects of impeachment. Um, You know, I think impeachment is a word that's largely misunderstood in general parlance by the public. I think when people say impeachment, they don't understand that it means only charge. They think that it means removal from office, I think. And so when people start talking about impeachment, I think people are, are, are not persuaded that we're there yet. And so rather than use that label of impeachment, which is so loaded and I think brings with it a great measure of defensiveness, I think just having an inquiry to understand the facts is something that's useful to the American people. That's a really good point. And on the will of the people idea, I read recently uh, a piece about how the independent vote really shifted quite a bit, uh, you know, in the spring and summer of 1974, eroding Nixon's support. So, you know, it's possible. It seems so entrenched, but it's possible that there's a a real segment of the electorate who would be moved. And as you say, if they're not, maybe that shows the the bigger remedy uh, or, you know, nothing, nothing more should be done. I'll say one more thing in its favor. The dynamic the entire couple years has been very frustrating because of the obvious strategic decision by the Republican Senate to hear nothing, say nothing, do nothing, and completely ignore, really not even take a position on obviously, you know, the most grave matters of presidential conduct. They could try to explain it away, but they don't even they try that. And it's very, every, every time you've thought about the House, there's always this, you know, terrible brooding uh, Republican Senate there to block it completely. And you know, maybe it's an obvious feature of Tribe's proposal, but to actually have the ability to just sideline the Senate Republicans and not have them be this kind of immovable force, I think, uh, really opens up the possibility of an actual you know, national process and debate. The, the Republicans in the Senate are the symptom, not the problem. They are this is this extends across Republican elected officials in the United States, but particularly both houses of Congress. Now, the immediate problem is that if faced with the question of whether to remove the president of the United States, it's clear right now that they would not act. But that's not unique to Senate Republicans because of the president's popularity with Republicans across the United States right now, no one seems to be challenging him on, on virtually any point other than uh, the, the profiles and courage that you see when an individual decides to, to like a Jeff Flake decides to retire. No one's really challenging the president generally. And I think that that's the bigger civic problem we're facing here. And we're, we have to confront it in the context of this impeachment talk. Well, I agree. But I mean, this is one way we would confront it. Okay, that's all we have time for on that and in in our uh, discussion in general, except our final segment, Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. So today's question comes from Georgina Pond, who uh, gave it to us on Twitter, which is a fine way to give it to us. Everyone should feel free to offer it that way. We definitely find them and um, consider them. And the question is, why isn't Mueller willing to testify at least about the ongoing problem for the 2020 election of the possible interference 
by Russia and others and about the need to protect the election. If he won't talk more about his findings, why won't he testify about that? So let's see. Um, Elliot? Don't worry. He's going to testify. Barb? Preserving independence and avoiding politics. Five words, exactly. A lot of syllables there. Uh Russia's how it all started. Not his role, Mr. Reticence. Okay, uh, that's that's our five words or fewer and all we have time for today. Thank you very much to Barb, Elliot, and Asha. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Transcripts by Cassandra Sunt. Special thanks to Paul DePodesta of the Cleveland Browns. And thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.